Welcome to Regenerative Farmers of America podcast. Hi, guys. I am so excited today to be joined by the ReFarm, and I will let them introduce themselves because they are awesome. Tell us a little bit about you guys, how you got started, and what's going on on your amazing farm. Well, thanks so much for having us. It's a real honor to be able to talk to you, and uh, we're just really excited about the work you're doing and super pumped about all of the new people that you are introducing to regenerative farming through your uh, different social media pages and your children's book and so many good things. So we're just, we're glad to be able to talk to you. My name's Zach. Um, I'm, I'm the much worse half of ReFarm here uh, in Southwest Oklahoma. We are located a little bit South of Lawton. That'd be the biggest town or city that we are close to that anybody would be familiar with about midway in between Lawton and Wichita Falls. So we raise beef, pork and eggs for communities here in Southwest Oklahoma. And then we also have a store in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is Casey's baby. And then another store in Norman, Oklahoma, which is also Casey's baby. So I do most of the grunt and non-skilled labor around here and leave all the, uh, the skilled labor to Casey. And she also helps out on the farm. So she's more dual purpose than I am. I'm I'm basically just one like no. She's a dual purpose breed. You picked well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my name's Casey. Shirler Abney is our last name. Um, I'm fifth generation here on our ranch in Southwest Oklahoma. And so my family has historically done conventional farming with cattle and some crops like wheat, um, but we're kind of trying to pioneer regenerative farming in our little part of the world. And so it's been it's been a real adventure as it always is. <laughs> I love it. So kind of walk me through the operations. You guys have cattle, pigs, uh, chickens, any, anything I'm missing? That's it right now. So we are uh, this next year going to be farming a, a little over a thousand acres. Um, and so we run a cow-calf herd, kind of the mechanics of our operation, the nitty-gritty for anybody that wants to know. We run a cow-calf herd. So we have mama cows who have calves. Um, and then we also bring in something called stalkers. So that's cattle that are already calves that we purchase and have on the farm while they gain weight for a while and then are sold. And one of the things that we think is important, um, particularly at the stage of we've we grew slowly for the first few years, trying to make sure that we understood what markets would work in our environment, what people had a demand for, and what we enjoyed raising. And that kind of product market fit is an important part of regenerative agriculture that um, we, we think it's vitally important to be able to build a viable business structure. And so the enterprises that we felt we enjoyed doing and that we had the environment to do were cow-calf operation, a stalker operation, because we have access to maybe a little more land than some other folks in the Northeast or the West Coast where land is divided up in a little smaller chunks. Uh, and then complementary enterprises to that, that we felt like um, were a good fit for our ecosystem here and the um, people who were interested in regenerative farm products were pork and then eggs and eggs tie in really well with cattle as most people would be able to tell you. So all of those have been expanding pretty rapidly over the past, um, I would say two years of really kind of understanding um, 
the tools we have available to us and then how we can distribute those products and then scale up as big as is healthy, which we think is really important. And the danger there is to scale up so quickly that you just become another commodity farm. And I think a beautiful part of regenerative agriculture is the appropriateness of all things to desire to fit into your ecosystem at a level that is sustainable and not only sustainable, but continues to be regenerative. So that's kind of the, the overview of our operation. We sell direct to consumer beef, direct to consumer pork uh, and do eggs, but the cattle operation also has a commercial side of it that allows us to have different cash flows. I love that. I feel like you, you hit on something very specific that you kind of investigated your market before you really like blew it up. You're not like, I'm going to be the biggest egg seller on the market. And you went boom, like, can you kind of briefly tell us like how you went through, like deciding what those markets are, where you looked for, what you tested for and how you even envisioned where you were going to scale. Yeah. And, and part of that, as anybody who has done any kind of either small or large scale in between homestead, whatever is you you start off with a couple chickens and <laughs> maybe a couple pigs and maybe a cow or two. And uh, for us, it started off um, with us needing healthy food. We didn't have access to healthy food where we live here in Southwest Oklahoma. We're a 30 minute drive, even from Walmart. And clearly even Walmart grass fed beef is not actually something that is healthy and nutrient dense and so as nutrient dense, as as nutrient dense. or even from our own country right <laughs> exactly so it started off as a, a more personal journey for us and Casey can talk a little bit about maybe I mean yeah well just through that you know needing access to nutrient dense food that's when we started to hear from our community about what they wanted and so that's when we were kind of like okay there's something viable here but the temptation with getting into regenerative farming too, is that it's very tempting to wanna to do all the things all at once and create this really beautiful, diverse permaculture ecosystem, which is amazing in theory, but at the same time, we have to figure out how to pay bills. And so, yeah, just starting off very small at our local farmer's market, selling longhorn beef, which we no longer raise longhorns for beef, but that was, that was sort of our startup into this and the demand has grown from there and we have grown very slowly behind that demand. We cannot meet our demand right now, um, but we just wanted to go slowly and grow responsibly in response to that. And also encourage other folks in our area to dive into regenerative farming too, because we don't need to be the biggest. We need one of us, you know, every five miles in an ideal world. Right. <laughs> Oh, such a good point because I think like permaculture right we need biodiversity so we would need the sheep the goats the cattle and I think you know I, I went down that road and we almost lost our marbles so I love that you guys are like go slow understand you know and move forward um, and that I think is a great way to dive into you guys um, take such an abundant level of care so you're moving animals more than even what people would consider necessary for regenerative farming Let's dive a little bit into the specifics of your rotational grazing and how you make those decisions, why you're moving them so frequently and any tips and tricks to efficiency. Since you guys are doing it a lot, you're probably getting really good at it by now. <laughs> um, we're inching closer to 10,000 hours is what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> a lot uh, of time in the sun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, really good question. And something that's really important to both of us personally is um, we hear a lot about why it's good for soil health to move our animals, whether it's once a day, once a week, once a month, any kind of animal movement creates more biological activity, creates more healthy ecosystems that are resilient and can withstand. We've had a terrible drought here this year. Um, and so we, we believe in any kind of animal movement and are not necessarily advocates of everyone doing the level of particularly, we'll talk about cattle movement that we participate in. So that's kind of my caveat to this whole discussion is you, you kind of have to find what fits your environment. We're in a, a, I would say, relatively dry environment that can go long times without rain. I'm not going to act like we're Southwest Texas or Arizona or Mexico by any means, but we're in a, a more brittle environment than some people, even 50 miles east of us past I-35. So we're 100 miles east of us. So what we have found is that by moving cattle between, and it can depend on a lot of different things, uh, two and six times a day is kind of the sweet spot for us. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'll start first and foremost with uh, animal, animal welfare. Um, one of the things that we found early on when we were moving cattle once every few days or even once a day is the cattle immediately go for the ice cream all around the pasture like we would if we go to a buffet. Um, we go straight for the things that have the highest energy level and taste the best to us. And so when we were moving cattle less frequently, what we ended up with was inconsistencies in cattle diet, which led to animal stress, um, some sickness, and it's still not like there were outbreaks of things. But uh, what we found is moving animals more frequently and making sure that they're eating everything in the pasture. So we want a high utilization rate um, to make sure that they're getting a diverse diet. They're eating all grasses, forbs, legumes, everything that grows naturally in the pasture, even trees, browsing. And so we want to encourage that kind of cattle behavior to increase the diversity of diet and stabilize the uh, nutritional value of forage that they're eating. So before they'd go into a paddock, eat really high, um, really high energy, really high protein, all the best stuff first, and then the level of nutrition would drop significantly. And by the end of the day, the cattle would be having to eat less nutrient dense, or that's probably not the right word for it. They'd have to eat worse quality forage or less palatable forage, maybe I should say, to them. And by moving them every couple hours, you keep that plane of nutrition at a high level, which creates less stress for the animal and allows them to utilize more of your pasture. Now that does a couple things for us. It allows us to graze more animals per acre because our utilization rate is higher. And it allows us not to have to use substitute feeds because it takes us longer to get back to, let's say we have a thousand paddocks, which if we're moving two or three times a day on the low end, that's not unreasonable to say. So if we're just going to graze every piece of ground for a couple hours, really, every year, it allows for a really extended rest time. And one of the problems that we faced early on, in addition to that infrequently changing plane of nutrition, was we were not getting enough rest. And it was allowing for some lower quality species to come back 
um, but it wasn't allowing for some of the native species that we really wanted to see come back. Back. So before we were operating on like between 30 and 50 days of rest time in between grazes and by moving to two to six times a day, and I'd say our average is probably somewhere around four, um, we get really extended rest times. So we're talking about like 60 days on the low end and 120 to a year. And we have some paddocks that we haven't had to graze in over a year, last June was the last time we grazed some of our forage. Um, and that was operating, our cattle are on 400 something acres and we had 120 mama cows. And so really intense for our high stocking rate, but still allowing long rest periods. And so that was a long way to answer your question, but lots of reasons, animal welfare, um, it's land health. We feel that the root exudates that are released by by grazing every single plant instead of just having cattle selectively graze really increases uh, hummus, humus in our soil. I'm not a scientist, so I can't tell you exactly how to say that word. Somebody, somebody out there watching this will be able to tell you exactly. Um, and it, it increases our cattle's ability to utilize all of our forage, which at the end of the day, if we're gonna make money, um, we need to be utilizing as much of our forage as possible. So long answer, but lots of reasons. And the cost really is just in time. And you asked about efficiency there. I can talk about it a little bit, but I also want to give you a chance to ask you. No, that, that totally makes sense. Like we don't feed kids ice cream in the morning and salads in the evening and expect a good maintained energy level. So I really, that makes a lot of sense about the time of day. Um, so I would love to go into the efficiency. I feel like you just nailed like all the reasons why this is so important, you know, as far as forage and that you even had excess land in a drought seems amazing that so many people are kind of like at max at the end and with your system that seems so intense has provided so many benefits. So take us down like how you do that semi-efficiently, you know, labor of love, but some level of efficiency. <laughs> yeah. And that, that has to be the question, right? Because the biggest downside if we're going to talk about realistic downsides to what we're doing is time human capital so you either need to employ somebody to do this or you yourself are doing this and a lot of people who are doing this either have off-farm jobs or have something else they're doing or have a few enterprises like we do and so building efficient systems was a key part of our scale plan and making sure that we weren't going to spend six hours a day moving fence and so we use I guess the best way to explain it is we use one strand of electric fence wire, high tensile, and we run it at one side of our paddock everywhere that we have a farm. There's always one strand of high tensile and it has an electric wire on it. And then we use it as a lane. So it's up against a barbed wire fence or a hard fence in our case on all of our farms. And we're able to use that to move our cattle back and forth everywhere that we have land. and we can off of that one strand of high tensile wire, we use something called poly wire and it's on reels. And one of the things that made us more efficient is buying geared reels. So every time you turn the handle, it's three rotations instead of one rotation. When you're moving fence as much as we are, that really makes a difference. And then I'd say buying really high quality fencing material was, it hurt at first to buy a post, a step-in post, an O'Brien's step-in post that was, $4.50 versus the one at Woods that's $1.25 or whatever. But we've now been using those for four years and the return on investment is 
huge. So we use polywire to subdivide little lanes on our land. And then we use um, poly pipe, so HDPE, plastic pipe. We just use small three quarter inch pipe and run a water line under that high tensile fence. And so we have water pretty much anywhere that we need it on our farm. And we use something called a quick coupler to attach a hose to the line and go to a small tank that can be moved around. And so there had to be a major investment up front because if you want to run an efficient farm, you eat, <laughs> what's the, there's some saying you can either, you can have two of three things, fast, cheap, and quick something like that. And so we chose up front that we wanted to be really efficient and we didn't want to be cheap. The return on investment for us, we knew would be big enough being able to run three times as many cattle as our neighbors on the same amount of land and still having some reserve. And so we figured it was best to go ahead and make that investment and then start improving our land really quickly instead of doing it slowly. Now to do that, we had to take on debt and it's a big deal to take on debt, especially when you're a smaller farm. But we just felt like in order for it not to run our lives, in order for us not to be moving fence for six hours a day, which we really have a high value on our time. At the time, we were both working off farm. And um, now I'm, I have like a part-time job off farm that I can do flexibly, but the cattle are my main deal. And we have the two stores and lots of other things. So I think, um, does that answer your question about efficiency? That was a long winding. You've no, now talked No, time. definitely a good one. And uh, tell me about pigs real quick too, because I saw like your beautiful oversimplified pig system, which we have not achieved. So I wanted to touch on pigs real quick too. <laughs> so we have, we have a big bulk feeder, that's a two ton feeder that we can move around. And when pigs arrive in our farm, we just use like little hog wire panels and uh, 16 foot by three foot tall panels. And we just kind of make a big circle and drag it around on the grass. And it's, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty low tech. It's pretty rudimentary. <laughs> but, it works. but if it works, right? Like, so we tried to do the poly wire and we had pigs running across the farm and that's much worse because they can do more damage quickly. So if that's the system that works, that's amazing. Like you just, hook it up to the tractor or something else and just drag it behind you kind just of drag it. We just drag it by hand. And that's just when pigs get okay. to the farm. We eventually once, but what we were having a problem with when pigs got dropped off is we'd either have a really small section of that hard fence, the panel fence, and then some electric wire in between. And the, it just got disgusting so quickly <laughs> having that kind of setup. And anybody who has pigs knows that after a couple of days in a small space, it's food. So for larger groups of pigs, like I think we'll have 60 pigs that we pick up next month. We'll probably do 100 to 120 pigs this year. And so we bring them in in batches and then butcher in batches. Um, and so we'll plop them into a big, like 10 to 12 panels, which creates a pretty big space. And then it takes some labor, but you just kind of drag it around while they're getting trained to electric fence in the middle. And then we move to polywire, same kind of grid setup where the pigs move, but we do not move pigs as frequently. It's like every 10, 10 days to two weeks. Um, and we just have sure, we make sure they have enough space to um, roam around and not root and destroy everything in sight, which they're very capable of doing. Right, I think pigs are kind of like the, the gold standard. You have a certain range of error with cattle and pigs that they are, you're not pigs that they overgraze and pigs, like if you go too hard, you're 
you're going to get a lot of damage real quick. <laughs> and and we have questions about the uh, are pigs right for our environment here? We're on a heavy clay soil, and we just have to be really careful with them. So there's enough market demand, and we enjoy having pigs and there's kind of a balance there between, okay, we know it's gonna take a little more labor and maybe we're gonna move them more often than we really want to, just to make sure we're not destroying our pastures. Yeah. But we have this area, this 10 acres, where we can mess with having pigs here. And if we make a mistake, it's okay, because we'll overseed and come back with pigs again. Yeah. Um, well, and I think you're talking about small batch, like, so your inclination would be to buy a bunch and do them once and leave it, but your system of light impact, smaller herds, like that totally makes sense. Yeah, if we were to do a hundred at a time on the land that we have right now, assigned to pigs, it would be, it'd be a moonscape. Yeah. <laughs> we've a whole lot for comeback. We have created moonscapes with pigs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sure that would go sideways very quickly in your environment. So. <laughs> Awesome. Well, let's pivot a little bit and talk more consumer facing. So you guys are direct to consumer. You've had a lot of challenges with evaluation, like how to compare to that Walmart meat that is the other one. Leave me a little bit through the, the tougher days of the margin and how you've gotten to in the stores that you guys are doing. Tell me about how that went. Well, we when we started out, like we mentioned, we were selling at farmers markets and um, but quickly realized one that farmers markets are they're great but they can't really be the end-all be-all and there has to be kind of and some of them are seasonal and some of them aren't and some of them have enough foot traffic to support farmers and some of them there's a bunch of competition and it takes an entire day or two out of every week and some prep and freezers and all this stuff and so early on we kind of decided that we needed to have a commodity facing side of the farm uh, that was able to operate at a scale that uh, could provide us some income when margins were low and expenses were high and we were having to pay off freezers and because it takes a lot of capital to build a direct-to-consumer business and so Casey had the idea to to and she can talk about this more to to create some new ways to get to consumers and kind of relieve some of the pressure of that massive expenses at one time for farmers market and then well, and so much of our market revolves around education. I mean, you're asking so much of farmers who decide to sell direct to consumer because then they're in charge of marketing their product and educating consumers on their product when, unfortunately, right now, a lot of people are still very unfamiliar with what regenerative agriculture means. Thankfully, there are people like you out there who are seeking to change that and doing a really awesome job at it. Um, but kind of became my desire to create these spaces in our surrounding communities where we could talk freely about regeneration beyond just a one day a week farmer's market. So we have these, you know, zero waste stores where we also sell our meat products. But yeah, communicating with consumers in terms of the price differences especially comes with some challenges because people don't understand the human capital that Zach mentioned earlier that goes into creating our product or the fact that we have chosen to not feed our pigs and chickens corn and soy. And so our feed costs come at a premium. All of this comes at a premium and we try to keep that premium as small as possible when it's presented to the consumer. But there are just these, these gaps there, these sort of mental hurdles that people have to get over to really understand. And so that's when we say, 
you know, well, come see our farm. If you can come check it out, see what we're doing. That's best case scenario and people really get it. Um, but if people aren't able to do that, it's really just figuring out what in particular about our work is the consumer interested because generally a customer is going to be really interested in the personal health aspect of our meat. Why is it more nutrient dense than you know meat from the grocery store shelf or the environmental impact? Um, and so figuring out sort of that connector point because typically with anyone we can find something that kind of reels them in with curiosity. So that's kind of been our journey, but it's still very much a learning experience that we're trying to figure out. Well, let's let's go there, right? Because I think everybody is trying to figure out what are those words that bring people in? Are there any kind of high level ones that are the ones that you found? So obviously like your health journey, number one, like eating better food leads to better health. I'm sure that was an easy start point or how is that incorporated in? I think story is probably the, like, you just mentioned Casey's story and our story here on the farm. I think that's probably the first question that we get asked is how did you end up doing this? And I think it's a really important part of uh, developing those relationships with customers is them understanding who we are. So there are some, and Casey might be able to talk about things that she sees that connect with people on social media or farmers markets. But from my perspective, that's probably the question that we get asked the most is about how did you, how, what, what, what are you, how did you end up in Southwest Oklahoma? What's your <laughs> closest town and, and why are you choosing to do these things? And, and that's just part of understanding. Uh, they want, people want relationship and having a relationship with your farmer uh, is a big deal. And I think it, it closes the circle in a lot of ways that people are looking for. They're looking for the closure and not wanting something that was factory farmed mechanically and yeah because people also understand right now that as a society we're pretty sick a lot of us struggle with autoimmunity myself included that's what led us on this whole journey but i mean cancer rates have skyrocketed they're just allergies have skyrocketed there are so many things and more and more research is coming out pointing in the direction of our conventional food system being one of the culprits of this. And so people are starting to ask questions, starting to care more about where their food comes from. And then you've got the environmental component on the flip side. Um, people want, consumers want to be able to make choices that are better for the planet. And I think, you know, it's kind of an uphill battle for all of us in regenerative agriculture who choose to raise animal protein because we're pushing against this societal movement toward, you know, well, plant-based is the sustainable thing to do. And there's so much nuance in this conversation. And I think our goal is to just invite people in, regardless of what their dietary choices are. We want to invite them into a conversation that says, hey, let's, let's rethink this narrative that has been set up of, you know, plant-based versus meat-based diets. And let's think about it this way, conventional versus regenerative diets, because that leaves a lot more room for the nuance that exists within our food system, which is, it's hard for people to accept nuance. We want clear-cut answers to things, but that's not the way that the world works. And so it is our hope to just always kindly and openly invite people into healthy conversations about food. Yeah. 
I, I think that conversation is so important to be the gateway. Like even if you don't want to consume animal proteins, a bean can be a regenerative bean versus a conventional bean. It has an entirely different lifestyle. And, you know, I think that's so important. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for sure. What other things you guys do so much? Is there anything that you guys kind of, I feel like you guys have been progressing so much over the last two years. What have you learned that you think has been super important to your journey to making this efficient, right? Like you guys are still holding down multiple jobs, paying for different things, getting into new areas. What's kind of your advice to the other people in the space and things that you've learned to help move yourself forward? Really good question. And I wish I had something that was just perfect to say back to you but I guess the one thing I, I think a lot about like if I was to start over how would I do things or what different decisions would we make or what different markets might we try and tap into and there's so many things but at the end of the day what I I think feel strongly about in this space for people getting into it is uh, there's a lot of temptation to just go for it and to cut corners and to to go straight to doing the thing that you see somebody doing on YouTube or uh, on Facebook on a regenerative grazing page or whatever and not very much uh, encouragement I don't think and maybe I'm just not in the right spaces for this but not very much encouragement to go at your own pace and build a really strong foundation because if you're not thinking about your farm first and foremost as a business and a business that can support itself and support you and isn't a drain on resources and time, but instead can add to your resources and time, then it'll just end up being any other job where it's not enjoyable, it's not paying you enough. And uh, there's, there's no way to get from zero to a hundred with farming in a healthy manner. <laughs> I just, I don't think nature scales like that. And there's things like land shock where land is like, uh, what are you doing to me? <laughs> yeah. and, and plants are stunted and you need legumes to kind of jumpstart things back up again. And so my encouragement and the thing that I keep reminding myself is that the, the better path forward, and there'd be people who disagree with me who go zero to hundred, but from, from my perspective, the better path forward for regenerative agriculture is building strong foundations that are capable of withstanding financial and weather resistance. Those would be the two things that I think are the most important risks in our business, finances and weather. And if we're able to build systems that maybe they're not as efficient as we want them to be, and maybe they don't make as much money on the front end as we want them, and maybe they're not as big as we want them to be, it sets you up for long-term success in a way that I think is really important for regenerative agriculture. Because if we have a bunch of boom bust regenerative ag farms that just go for it and then figure out that the market isn't there or go for it and figure out that they don't have the production skill, um, it, it won't be pretty. And it'll you'll end up with products that don't meet the standards consumers are looking for and will just be organic 2.0 where it's greenwashed and people say they're grass-fed and finishing their cows and they're really just feeding them corn stalks and it's the same thing over again. Is that, 
I'm, maybe that was a little cynical, but I just no, didn't. no. I think it's so good too, and also the the conversation that you made the point about investing in quality, but that's a debt, so that's a stressor. And if we can't pay back that debt, then that further leads to a negative outlook of all this regenerative. So I feel like we all have to kind of hold the standard of can we pay it back to the land, to the bank, to our community, to all the different layers. So I think it's really important points about investing but investing sustainably regeneratively you know it, it doesn't happen overnight in nature or in bank accounts <laughs> oh there's no free lunch in nature you cannot go from nothing to something without input and we need to make sure as regenerative farmers our inputs are viewed holistically yeah. and it's not just about the financial return it's not just about the soil return it's not just about the animal welfare it's about all those things and there's no way to you cannot shortcut that. You can scale it, but you can't shortcut it. I mean, I wish we had been at this level four years ago. Yes. And maybe I'm still not ready to be at this level, but I do think I know way more now. And I in our very that. limited experience, I mean, we're just going into yeah. year five of this yeah. operation. So obviously uh, we're still very new in this world as well, but we have witnessed other people burn out already and just think that they could make it and have to tap out. And it's really, it's really hard to watch. But one of the most beautiful things I think for both of us about the regenerative community is that there's such a strong sense of community within it. Even though we don't have many regeneratively practicing neighbors, we have this awesome online community that we feel connected to in an industry that is historically super isolated. You know, farming has some of the highest suicide rates in the nation by industry. And I feel like there's some pushback in that and we all recognize that okay regenerative agriculture isn't happening in a silo it's got to happen with this communal effort communal buy-in and so i think that's part of the antidote to some of these challenges too i love it and i'll kind of ask you one broad wrap-up so feel free to sprawl and go sideways but kind of what's your hope for the people coming to the space obviously like longevity and community are in there is there any kind of hopes and aspirations for is it someone every five miles? Kind of what's your vision of how this works? Yeah, I, I, I want to build, I want to be part of an ecosystem that is regenerative in every way and is able to lead to more life um, at, at the expense of nothing. But the, I mean, death is always going to be a part of our, of this world. And if that's the expense that we have, that, Sometimes plants die and they feed the earth and sometimes cattle eat those plants and they die. And we, that, so that system can just continue to build uh, without, without having to bring in uh, energy that is not healthy or required. And none of us are going to be perfect in that. And I don't know if that answer even makes sense, but if it's five miles, if it's 10 miles, one of us, every that distance, then that would be fantastic. But if the earth requires that it's every 20 miles or every one mile, then that's, that would be my hope is that we as a, as a movement can be more focused on the health of everything we're involved in rather than quotas and numbers and whatever, whatever that might be. Okay. So you want to add anything to that? Any aspirations of your own? Yeah, I think, I mean, we are surrounded by conventional farms right now. I think a large part of our vision is just 
being able to have constructive conversations with people who are already in this space. It's awesome that so many new people are entering into the agriculture space, but we can't leave behind folks who have been participating in systems yeah. for, for decades. And even though our practices look very different from theirs, they have so much wisdom to share, knowledge to share. We all want the same thing at the end of the day. We all want our soils to be healthy. We all want our livestock to be healthy. We just have different means and mediums of making that happen. And so I think sort of bridging this gap between the regenerative space and the conventional space is a really big goal of ours. Yeah, that's a, a big goal too, but I know you are kind of right in the hub with location and family. So you were in it, making it happen. <laughs> totally. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you both, all your hard work, your 10,000 moves a day. You're constantly trying to figure it out. So we appreciate you both so much and all the positive impact you're making. Well, thank you. you we're, we're super grateful for you and everything that you're doing and uh, wish you the best in, in all of it. And uh, just glad to know somebody like you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you guys. You're awesome.